This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Hello, I'm Wayne Scott and welcome to episode two of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, keeping Jaguar fans in touch worldwide. This week, I continue my chat with racing legend Wyn Percy, where he describes his frightening crash at Le Mans and shares his stories from the era of racing for TWR. Richard West shares more of his motorsport memories and Tom Robinson from Swallow's Independent Jaguar answers all of your technical questions. JECpodcast.com First, though, I hope you're keeping safe and well as lockdown continues across the Jaguar world. To start the podcast off this week, we're going to be celebrating the life of a legend as we remember Sir Sterling Moss. Helping me with this is motoring historian and author Graham Robson, who has over 160 books to his name, and through all of that work, interviewed Sir Sterling Moss on many occasions. Hiya, Graham. Good afternoon. And you do have a slight claim to fame related to the E-type, don't you? Tell us more about that. <laughs> Thank you for that. This will be in 1959-1960. Gosh, that's a long time ago. And uh, I was doing a lot of bits and pieces to, my, to the bidding and calling of my seniors. One day, I remember in particular, uh, he came up to me on a Monday morning and said, Are you busy? I said, Well, um, hmm. you, know the, you know the E-type's coming? I said, Yes. And he said, well, he said, we've just realized that uh, we haven't designed the exhaust system for it yet. We've got to release an exhaust, you know what I mean by engineering release. We've got to release an exhaust system within seven days on the E-Type. It's your job. I thought, thank you very much. And I thought, well, what's the snag? And he said, oh, by the way, he said in engineering terms, we've already released the tub, the the chassis, so we can't alter anything under under the car to make space for the runs of the pipes. And um, we've already released the general height of the thing, so we only have so many inches between the tub and the ground. Uh, oh, you've got seven days, he said. And I said, well, what about the silencing system? He said, oh, he said, we've already sold the contract for that to, I think it was Burgess. Uh, and, and so we know what silencers we're going to use, but we haven't thought where we're going to put them. So that was my job. And in seven days, I had to and did um, lay out the exhaust system for the first E-types, which included... As I'm sure every Jaguar enthusiast would know, a very complicated way of fiddling the pipes through the independent rear suspension. And of course, the only, only place I could put the silencers themselves without ruining the ground clearance was near the back, which is why you can always see the silencers on an early E-type. Well, if anyone's struggling fitting an exhaust during lockdown to their E-type, they know who to <laughs> blame now, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> But it was typical of Jaguar that they, they I won't say they, they weren't disorganised, they were not. But most things were done at the last minute as cheaply as possible in those days. And that explains why Jaguar and Sir William were so successful, that they never believed in throwing money and time at things. They wanted things done now, and they wanted them done at the right price. Mm-hmm. Sterling Moss was very much a part of Jaguar in its racing heyday of the 1950s. And Sir William Lyons famously spotted Sterling Moss as a very, very young driver racing an XK120 owned by Tommy Wisdom at Dundrod in 1950. And at the age of just 21, Sir William Lyons went up to Sterling Moss and said, tell you what, can you run my team? I mean, that was an incredible feat, wasn't it, really? And he was incredibly self-assured at that age. I mean, he was already very good. He was already quicker than everyone else. The point I want to make about Sterling was that then, as in later life, he always delivered. And I think Sir William liked that. But Sir William decided that this is a man who can do the job. I don't mind how young he is. He will do the job. And as you say, he joined the team. Now, unfortunately... Although he was wonderful and although he was very, very quick, he just never seemed to have the mechanical luck to win too many events for Jagger, although he was always one of the quickest of all the team drivers. You met him on a number of occasions and interviewed him. How did you find him as a person to work alongside? It was always a pleasure. Going back to when Sterling had that awful accident, he recovered from this accident and he was only 32. He keeps telling us that. He was only 32 when he had his accident. And he said, I sat up in my hospital bed one day and I decided that what was I going to do with the rest of my life? I needed money and I decided that for my profession I was going to be Sterling Moss. 
I thought there's no answer to that. That's the thing to do. And by deciding to be Sterling Moss, he then did it beautifully, professionally and at length for 50 years. He's always dubbed as the uh, racing driver that always should have won a championship but didn't in Formula One. Of course, he was the first British driver to win a British Grand Prix at Aintree in 1955, which was, of course, the same year he joined Mercedes. But he beat Juan Manuel Fangio that year in a race that he has always kind of maintained that Fangio let him win. That was the first British Grand Prix I ever went to, and I saw that event. And I can tell you that we didn't know even then or afterwards whether, if you like, Fangio had lifted his foot at the last minute. But certainly, if you saw the, the newsreel shots only the other day, they crossed the line about half a car's length apart. And uh, it was just a wonderful finish. Was it stage managed? I don't know. But he was a supreme driver. And I think Fangio thought, right, OK, he's been my apprentice long enough. Let's see just how good he is. And they had a wonderful day. And of course, Fangio went on to become a friend and a mentor to Moss, and they were teammates at Mercedes as well. And I guess probably his most notable achievements, Moss, were during that time at Mercedes, weren't they? Yes, and what's interesting is that everyone mentions this, and of course, his win on the Millie Millie in 1955, which, uh, sorry about this, uh, we're talking on Jaguar matters, this was in a Mercedes, but his win in the Millie Millie in 1955 was just astonishing. What I think many people forget is that he was only driving for Mercedes for that one year, 1955. He only joined them at the start of the year, left them at the end of the year because Mercedes closed down, and yet he was a total legend with them. I have had reason to go to Mercedes-Benz events in fairly recent years, and until fairly recently, whenever you went there and there was anything happening publicity-wise, guess who was there? Sterling was there. He was treated as a god right to the end. That's how much people thought about him. He was just so impressive in everything he did, so smooth, so precise, so damnably fast, and um, this is why we're going to miss him so much. Absolutely. And of course, three years he had at Jaguar and notable achievements with Jaguar, I would say, were probably coming second at Le Mans in 53 with Peter Walker when they shared that C-type. The two other things, the list of Jaguar Nobly, which was the only car he put his name to for marketing purposes. And then there was that incredible feat that him and Jack Fairman uh, did in that weird autodrome place near Paris, where they broke the record for averaging over 100 mile an hour. This was the era of speed records, wasn't it, as well? Can you consider looking at Monnery, which was a bank circuit, fairly steep bankings, by the way. I went, went round there on press occasions occasionally for day after day after day, for seven days, just driving an XK120, which was fine. But I guess that even in those days, he didn't even have a radio to listen to. Incidentally, I'm going to divert now, having mentioned the radio, that he was so self-assured that towards the end of his career, apparently one year he was winning the tourist trophy uh, at Goodwood in an Aston Martin and he got a bit bored in the middle because he was leading so he said he switched the radio on in the Aston Martin to listen to Raymond Baxter talking about him <laughs> that, that's how sort of cool he was <laughs> that, is, that is very cool 50s racing driver that is definitely yeah well let's look at the stats he raced for Jaguar between 51 and 54 he wrapped up 10 wins with Jaguar during his career with them including uh, some quite successful drives in the Jaguar Mark II saloons because of course this was the era when racing drivers did a bit of everything they didn't just stick to one discipline in the sport and then out of his entire career he won 212 of his 529 races and 16 of those wins were in Formula One. Sterling once said that he was so active about driving two or three different races a day and everything and finishing them he said he said you remember that phrase he said a rolling stone gathers no moss he, he altered it to a stationary moss gathers no sterling think about it <laughs> graham robson much appreciated you coming on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast and sharing your memories of a legend of course sir sterling moss who passed away april the 12th 2020 age 90 and the words that i'll leave you with are those of lady moss who was speaking in the press earlier this week who said he died as he lived looking wonderful a fantastic tribute to a legend that was sir sterling moss Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Richard West has enjoyed a lifetime in motorsport and this week looks back on what it was that started off his interest in racing 
and launched a career that saw him work with some of the best teams and drivers in the business. My first experience in motorsport was standing at the bungalow on the Isle of Man TT, aged seven years old, watching a rider called Bill Ivey on a 100cc motorcycle achieve the first plus 100 mile an hour average lap of the Isle of Man. Um, my father was a train driver, but he was fairly unusual in the sense that he was 64 years of age when he had me. He'd lost his first wife and my mother had lost her first husband and they got together and there was nearly a 30 year age gap between them. Good old boy. And um, a year after they got married, I was on the scene. And as my dad grew older, he became an old gentleman and I needed to be brought up. And my family, one of my nephews, was into motorcycle racing. And for many years, I was taken motorcycle racing to all of the classic UK circuits. I went to Bruno in Czechoslovakia, went to the Isle of Man six times, met Agostini and Mike Hellwood and Percy Tate and, you know, guys like that, Phil Reed. And it, it just gets in your blood. And I, I, things with engines always fascinated me. And I'd convinced myself for many years that I was very talented, which I should have learned when I crashed a go-kart age 13 and injured myself probably wasn't the truth. But it all came to the fore when I left college at 17, not particularly very well academically qualified. Went through a number of jobs. And my girlfriend at the time, her brother said, listen, if you carry on like this, you're gonna be unemployed. You need to do an automotive apprenticeship. And I, I was apprenticed at a Ford main dealership in Reading and they were an RS dealer. And within a matter of days, I realized that half the workshop was full of Ford Granadas and Ford Zephyrs and transit vans with flashing blue lights on. And the other half was full of big wing Mark 1 Ford Escort RS1600s and Mexicos. And it doesn't take a lot to work out which side of the garage I wanted to work in. And um, I started to do weekend work as a freelancer. Um, I built my own rally car and injured myself. And I had this remarkable moment when I was being loaded into an ambulance following an accident and I asked the Yorkshireman who was the ambulance driver, I said to him, I was under morphine at the time, I said, what do you think happened? And he said, I think you ran out of talent halfway through a quick corner, mate. Um, and that was really the end of my driving career. I built other cars and rallied them. But people said to me, you know, you're quite good with PR. Um, I worked for Datsun and for Ford on World Rally Championship events. And in 1983-4, I was uh, fortunate enough to be introduced to Frank Williams. And in January 1984, uh, I moved into a role as a sponsorship coordinator with Williams Grand Prix Engineering at Didcot and was there for six months until I was um, headhunted and went to McLaren with Ron and the team there with, uh, with Prost and Lauder, etc. throughout those glory years of the 80s. It, it just courses through my blood, even though I try and convince myself sometimes that, you know, I'd, I'd like to go fishing or, you know, play pigeon shooting. In actual fact, if there's any excuse to go anywhere where things are happening with engines, I want to be there because it just evokes so many memories. I've never regretted a single moment. You know, there's been high points and there's been a couple of very sad points, things like when, you know, we lost Ayrton when I was working for Frank Williams uh, in Miller in 94, you know, which to this day still hurts. But the reality is... I've had the benefit of working in many different formulas and even running a championship when I ran the BTCC through its difficult years from 2001 to 2004. And I just wouldn't have missed a second of it. And I do feel truly blessed. And had it not been for my late nephew standing me on that veranda, you know, age six or seven or whatever I was, watching Bill Ivey, you know, who was a bit of a rock star legend in those days, as well as a fantastic rider, I probably wouldn't have gone and uh, done what I did, but it, the bug bit, and as you well know, because you're passionate about it as well as are many of our members, once the bug bites, you just, you're stuck with it. You can't, it never leaves you. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge. All your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. Joining us again this week on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast is our technical guru from Swallow's Independent Jaguar. Tom Robinson joins us. Hiya, Tom. Hi, Wayne. Tom, what have you been up to in the workshop this week? We're still working our way through the Maguire's build, so um, getting ready for the next episode. 
Um, we've got a couple of vehicles that are in for some kind of long-term work. We're doing a head gasket on an XKR at the moment, so um, the boys have been busy with that. Um, and just a couple of general services this week that are still going ahead, and some people are still getting MOTs done. So, yeah, that's what we've been up to at the moment. Well, it's good to hear you're still busy, and I'm about to make you even busier because we've got some technical questions from the listeners to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, and we start with our first audio message from Andy Webber. I parked my 2016 XJ in the garage for three weeks because I knew I wouldn't be using it. I had it on a trickle charger. I then went to start the car, um, but the error message came up, smart key not recognised. I tried it with both keys. Um, it took me five or ten minutes to get the car to respond, in which case I took it out of the garage and I've taken it for a couple of runs now, short runs, um, with both keys in the car, still getting the same message and it's still taking me um, four or five minutes to start the car. I have changed the batteries in the remotes, um, but to no avail. The remote functions are working absolutely fine uh, in terms of unlocking and unlocking the car, um, but I'm still getting this error message uh, by the car itself when trying to start it. Any help, much appreciated. Thank you. Right, okay, that, that's interesting actually because we, we have experienced um, that issue here ourselves when we've had batteries disconnected off vehicles. So um, first things first, I don't know whether he's already tried this, but I would obviously reconnect the battery back up and just lock all or shut all the doors, lock the vehicle down and arm it so it's in an armed state, so double lock the car and just leave it for sort of three minutes, let the car fully shut down then reopen the car and then just try this process again. And there's just a couple of pointers as well to, to make sure is just make sure the keys, if they are in your pocket, that they're not near any sort of electrical devices. This can cause sort of interference and maybe actually try putting the key in the dock or in the center console where the receiver is or actually on the steering column. Now, if that fault is, is still proceeding and it looks like you've um, already potentially replaced the batteries on the key fobs, um, I would then probably suggest there's maybe a receiver issue there or it's not recognising that key, so we'd have to carry out a couple of checks. But I would try, try that process first. Just make sure you lock all of the car, everything's shut. Just leave it for three minutes, let everything shut down, reopen and run the process again. If it still persists, it, it will need to be looked at, unfortunately, um, and we'll run some basic diagnostics on it. Okay, so Andy in South Wales, not too far away from you, so hopefully if uh, that doesn't solve it, he can come and get in touch with you. On to our next question, sent in by the contact form, this one, at jecpodcast.com, and it comes from Rob Cottrell. He's got a 2011 5-litre XK, and he's asking about gearbox oil changes. He says, even though a lot of what I've read says that Jaguar say the gearbox is sealed for life, opinion seems to suggest that I should change the oil. ZF themselves have created a video recommending a change of oil and plastic pan and filter between 50,000 and 75,000 miles or eight years. He says, my gearbox is the 6HP28 and although the car has only covered 44,000, it's almost nine years old, so I want to change it. Firstly, is it essential to use ZF original parts and lifeguard fluid as there are cheaper quality options? Secondly, I understand there is also an electrical connector that is prone to weep and is worth replacing at the same time. Can you tell me what that connector is, please, and whether there are any other cheaper options on the oils? It's something we get asked all the time because you are absolutely correct. Jaguar say that that gearbox is sealed for life, but... I mean, I don't know what Jaguar call life, so it's a really good point. So we deal directly with the ZF uh, gearbox manufacturers. We're a Protec center, and with the training that we've been given by them, they do recommend 50 to 70K all the eight years, as you've already said. Now, we always stick to this guidance and recommend to budget this in with your general service and maintenance. Um, now, I'm also afraid it is essential to use a six-speed lifeguard all as with other alternatives, this can cause damage to the clutch back. Now, the electrical connector you're talking about, you're absolutely correct. It is absolutely essential to replace that with your gearbox sump pan. Um, one, they're really common to leaking, 
and it's really accessible to replace that block connector at the same time. Now, most of the service kits actually come with the block connector, or you can get it directly from Jaguar themselves, but ZF do sell the sump kit and all of the oil as one kit. Now, the sump on these is the filter as well, just to make that clear. The sump and filter are the same item. Okay, now uh, just another couple of points just to, to make everyone aware of that when you do do the oil and filters on these, they are really awkward to get the oil level right and they do have to be checked at an exact temperature. So when we do the oil changes, we actually connect up to the diagnostics and can see the temperature of the gearbox. So I would recommend going to a specialist to get this job done. And what does that electrical connector do, Tom? So the electrical connector is actually the main car harness. So it connects to the gearbox. The module in these um, gearboxes is internal. So it is the main harness um, from the gearbox to the car. There's, there's like an internal O-ring on there, which can leak into the block connector, which can cause sort of communication issues. Um, and it's really common for them to leak around that area. So the way to replace a block connector is to drain all of the oil um, and you have to remove that plastic sump slash filter at the same time. So hence why we always do it as just a, a precaution, replace that with all the oil and the filter at the same time. Well, Rob, it sounds like you're better off going to a specialist for that one, but certainly making sure that whatever service kit you buy has that connector in it and that you buy the correct ZF lubricant as well our next question then is from kevin francis who has an 05 plate x type it's a two and a half liter petrol and it's sprung an oil leak and before he gets grubby climbing underneath it is there something in common with all of these cars that makes them prone to oil leaks? Unfortunately, it's pretty hard, obviously, to take a guess without physically looking at this. But there's a couple of things that would make it easier if you like to respond to. Now, first things first, I'll try and work, work out sort of what oil it is. Um, for example, if it has a red tinge to it, um, we'd be looking towards an ATF that's used in the power steering or can be transmission if it's been changed at a later date. Now, once we can sort of ascertain what type of oil it is, we can sort of see what direction it would be coming from. But a couple of common issues on these, if it's an all-wheel drive one, they do suffer with sort of oil leaks around the transfer box casing. Um, on the engine side of things, we've also experienced issues with the sump pan um, and also the, um, the actual main crank seal behind the pulley there can leak as well. And also on the gearbox side, they, they do suffer with um, drive shaft seals weeping. So once we sort of determine what oil that is, I could probably give you a little bit more advice on, on roughly where I'd think that'd be coming from. But they're kind of your most common issues there. But unfortunately, it probably is going to be a case of getting underneath the vehicle and, and having a look at exactly where that's coming from. Tom, last week on the podcast, we talked a lot about EGR valves. And uh, we had a really good question about EGR valves during lockdown getting clogged up. This sparked Jamie Robertson to get in touch and write to us to say his 2013 2.2 Luxury XF needed an EGR valve. He's just had to replace that and the cooler costing over a grand, which is, yeah, that's about right, I should think. Um, but he'd like to know more about why they break and why on earth do they need EGR valves in the first place? No, that's, that's a really good point, um, Jamie. Now, first things first, the simple answer to that question is the car doesn't need an EGR valve. Um, unfortunately, it's mandatory on diesel engines due to the European emission standard. So the vehicle doesn't need it to run. Now, the EGR valve basically will recycle exhaust gases back into the air intake system to reduce the amount of sort of harmful NOx gases emitted by the vehicle. Um, now, the reason they're common to fail is in this process, it creates a lot of excess soot and that can sort of jam and block the EGR, etc. So that is unfortunately why they are common to fail um, is due to the amount of soot buildup in that, that piston there or it can damage the motor itself. Well, that is your questions answered for this issue of the JEC podcast. Don't forget, you can ask your questions for next week's show very simply by going to www.jecpodcast.com and using either the little voice recorder on there or, of course, the contact form as well. And Tom will be here next week to answer more of your questions on anything Jaguar related. But in the meantime, Tom, what are you up to down at Swallows? We've got um, a full week's worth of bookings next week. So we, we've got varying cars coming in through the workshops day to day. So, yeah, plenty to keep us busy. Well, until next week, see you, Tom. Thanks, Wayne. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk
Last week on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we enjoyed the first part of my conversation with Jaguar racing legend Wynn Percy. You can listen to part one in episode one via jecpodcast.com. Now we pick up on the story as Wynn Percy is talking about Tom Walkinshaw and what he was like to race for. Hey, did you get a real sense from very early days with Tom that he really pushed his drivers quite hard? Yeah, he wanted the best. He really did want you. Otherwise, it was goodbye without any question. But, you know, he also, he, he wasn't used, and I'll, I'll, I great respect for him, but he wasn't used to be stood up to because at the end of 81, he said to me at Thruxton, after I won the championship in the last race, there was one to go, actually. We didn't do that. He wanted to take the car to Zolder to show the Europeans that we could do well. And I actually went to Zolder and, and won a two-piece race in the RX-7 against all the, the big Camaros and um, Capris and everything. So that pleased him. But anyway, um, we got, I got out of the car at Thrax and he said, well done, mate, shook hands. Oh, and he put it up to 8,000 that year, which was, you know, <laughs> two, grand, two grand bonus uh, uh, increase. So that was pretty good. Anyway, I got out of the car and he said, it's a shame I haven't got a drive for you next year. And I thought, wow, I don't believe it. He's took me away from Toyota and um, he's dumped me. I couldn't believe it. So anyway, I went off down the pit lane feeling pretty sorry for myself. And Mike Copeland was there outside the Toyota pits. Mike was um, Toyota's motorsport manager. manager. He was the guy that had looked after me, 76, um, 75, 76, right through till Tom took me. He said, what's wrong? He said, you just won the championship. I said, well, I said, you won't believe it, but I haven't got a drive next year. He said, we'll take you back. I said, really? He said, of course we will, now. And I said, but we're driving what? He said, the 1600 Corolla. We've dropped the Celica. We'd like you in the Corolla. And yeah, we'd love it. Would you do it? Um, And we shook hands. And to me, a handshake is a signature. That's it. I don't go back on it. So I walked back up the pit lane, went into Tom's, well, it wasn't a motorhome, but a big caravan at the time. And um, he said, come on then. He said, we'll sit down and um, talk about next year. I said, I'm just kind of getting my kit, Tom. Um, don't worry. You know, it's not a problem. I've got to drive. Don't be stupid. He said, you're driving a Rover. <laughs> I said, but you said I didn't have a drive. Of course you have. I said, mate, I've shook hands. Well, go and unshake it. I said, I can't. I can't do that. And he got really cross with me and he stomped off out like a spoiled child. <laughs> but anyway, I went and drove the Toyotas and uh, won the championship and beat the Rovers, really. I really bugged him. That little Corolla was, was quite amazing, actually. You know, if you somewhere like Thruxton, you could actually slipstream the Rovers all up the back straight because they'd all be bunched up. Mm. You could outbreak them and come out of the chicane in front of them. And it used to really bug them. In fact, dear old Frank Sittner, um, I actually crossed the line in front of him with his Tom Walkinshaw Rover one day. And, uh, oh, he actually fell out with Tom in a big way. But it wasn't anything wrong with his Rover. It was that the little Corolla was, was mm. so amazing if you could get a slipstream like that which you could at Thraxton. Mind you, when you did get in the Rover SD1, uh, you did quite well in it, didn't you? Let's be honest. <laughs> well, the Rover was probably one of the easiest uh, touring cars ever. I mean, they had years of development. It was the latter part of their development. And I think the first, uh, seven, 85, we won, was it seven of the 500k races in Europe that year, Tom and I? Hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a fantastic car to drive. I absolutely loved it. I don't think I've ever had a car that I didn't really like, to be honest. I mean, you can, you can work on a car. If the, if the team are prepared to listen and help a driver, between the two of you, you can, you can get the best out of a car. Eventually, although Tom, I guess, kind of saw you as his touring car star, he did eventually put you into one of those early Group C cars, the XJR6. Was this something that really appealed to you was it an ambition of yours at the time and what were your first impressions coming from a touring car discipline into group c he wouldn't let me ever go and drive a group c car and it really in fact we were up at um donnington and that was the number five car the green one before the latter group c cars the silk cut cars came out 
And Hans Heyer was up at uh, Donington doing a day's testing with that car. And um, I was there with the Rover. I finished my testing. And um, I went down the pit lane and Tom was there waiting for Hans to come in. Hans then, about four o'clock, had to go to the airport to get his plane home. So he disappeared. I said to Tom, can I drive it? He said, no. I said, please, can I drive it? He said, no, you're a touring car driver. You're not going to drive it. So anyway, he got in it. He went out the pit lane, bang, 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 bang on, this, on the rev limiter, driving it like typical Tom, grabbed the damn thing. His first flying lap was quicker than Hans had been all day. So he came in. I said, give me a go. He said, no. Second time he came in, I said the same. He said, no. He said, I tell you what. He said, if there's still time when I finished, you can have a go. So I thought, that'll be good. So I stayed there with my overalls on, waited and waited. He came in at five to five. They closed the circuit at five. And he said, you can have a go now. What was the point? So I drove back to Weymouth in the right stop. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were coming back from Australia. I thought coming back to England, we ended up going to Paul Ricard. And he said, look, if you and Armin want to drive the Group C, you can. If, however, don't be proud. If you don't like it, don't worry. Don't do it. But if you want, you guys can do Le Mans, which was 86. And we were there with all the Formula One drivers and all the sports car drivers and all. And we had our turn. And it took me about a lap to absolutely love it. I really loved it. Mm -hmm. And I was doing the times of everyone else. And something happened on the Wednesday. It was quite funny, actually, because we had the whole long circuit which is unusual these days. And going up the long back straight, the scene straight, there was a single seater on that day, which I didn't know who it was. Um, didn't even know what the car was. I didn't know anybody else was there that day. But anyway, it was going up the scene straight. I was doing about 210, 212 miles an hour. And I went by it and waved and went on round the top of scene into the narrow part, tighter part of the circuit, and it got on my tail, so I eased slightly and it went by. Did my hour running, got out of the car, and I said, what was that little single-seater? And everybody started laughing. It was Prost in the McLaren. <laughs> but, of course, 185 was about all he would do, and the, the Jaguar was that much quicker, you know. Mm. And I had no idea. I thought that was really funny, actually. <laughs> but it was, it was a fantastic day's running. I really loved it. And then Armin and I went to Le Mans. And I was with Armin and Brancatelli, I think, that year. And we were running really well at about two in the morning. And a drive shaft went and threw me up the escape road at the Porsche Curves. And that was the end of the race. But we were well up at that time and really enjoying it. Take us back then to 1987, that fateful year at Le Mans. And you are asleep in your caravan and there's a knock at the door and it's Tom Walkinshaw telling you to get in the car. Uh, tell us how things played out from that point onwards that year. Well, he didn't actually tell me to get in it, to be honest, because he'd had this awful feeling that I shouldn't drive it that year. It was his feeling. He didn't want me to drive it that year. But he said, you can qualify it, but I don't want you to drive it. Yeah, it was about, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning. I can't remember. And... Um, I was sound asleep, thinking, well, that's it. I guess I haven't got to drive. And uh, he came in. He said, look, I'm, I've got a problem. He said, would you, would you drive it? And I said, of course I will. That's what I'm here for. He said, look, you've got to be sure you want to. I said, Tom, I want to. I, I said, what's the problem? He said, well, sadly, he said, Watson doesn't want to go out in the dark again. He said, and I've only got Jan in the car. Jan's going to do a triple stint, which gives you a chance to get ready, see the doctor, freshen up and you'll be okay. I said, yep, no trouble. That was okay. I got in the car. I don't think I touched the brake pedal as I got in, but if I did brush it, the trouble was a um, caliper popped while they were changing the pads, and it took a longer pit stop than was required. I think Jan brought it in at about second place overall, which was wonderful. Hmm. Um, anyway, eventually we got out onto the track, down the Molsan, I came by the pits and um, Tom said, are you okay? I said, yes, I'm okay, thank you. And howled off down the Molsan and about 600 metres before the kink, um, almighty bang, 
and it took off. And I hunched up like an aircraft because, like being in an aircraft crash, I'm told, um, there wasn't any point holding onto the wheel or hitting pedals or anything. And uh, I don't know why, but I closed my eyes as well, which is a bit stupid. Anyway, I opened them, and I was in the night sky above those huge trees going down to Malsan, just slowly rotating in the night sky. And then it started to land, and I thought, this is really going to hurt. And um, it crashed from the left to the right to the left to the right, went round the kink, and ended up about 300 metres down the road. So it actually crashed for 600 metres. And it ended up on its bottom without anything, no wheels, suspension, bodywork, um, doors gone. And I literally undid the belt, unplugged the radio very carefully because Tom was giving us a right rather king for pulling the aerials and breaking them. And they were pound each. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I then walked away, got over the armco, and the Toyota boys were in the trees because Alan Jones had already blown the Toyota up. Um, and they um, they said, oh, Percy San, take you home, take you to the pits. So that happened. They took me back because it's a long way from there back to the pits. Yeah. And I think, well, yeah, Martin was one of the first Jaguars through the wreckage. And he reported in to say, Tom, it's one of ours. I can see the bodywork. Who is it? And then they realized it was me. Um, I got back to the pits and Tom was just stood like a white pillar. He looked absolutely ashen. And he said, are you all right? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay, thank you. He said, what happened? I said, I honestly don't know, Tom. I said, there was just a big bang. He said, but no warning. I said, no, because we had a Formula One setup on the dash that year. Um, it was a fuel uh, setup for Formula One boys, but we changed it to tire temperature. So if either corner tire deflated or overheated slightly a light would come on you'd press the light and if it was just a slight wavering of the temperature you'd ignore it watch the light but ignore it watch the gauge if it escalated you back off but it didn't it didn't give me any warning at all so i didn't lift off no way and um it turned out that where that we had the pit stops we hadn't thought of it obviously nobody thought of it but all the marbles, the bits of rubber off the track, had stuck and sealed the sensors off. They covered the sensors over and the edges of the bodywork. So I wasn't getting the message that I should have done. Mm. But, but amazingly, you know, the year before 86, poor old Joe Gartner died down the mole stand where his Porsche had locked up and gone into the trees. And we had complained to the ACO about the two layers of Armco, which was only like knee height. And we almost demanded or requested, demanded, whatever you want to call it, um, an extra layer all down the Molsan. And they did it. Yeah. And it was that layer that saved my life, really, because I took the top of it off everywhere. I think the, the pace car was out for like three hours or something, you know. Wow. Well, I know from talking to Andy Wallace at uh, the Summer Jaguar Festival at Blenheim Palace last year. He was very candid about the fact that the knowledge of your accident and the fact that it had come about because of the pressures they were putting on the tyres with the speeds that you were pulling down Molsan, it was something that he could never really sort of get out the back of his mind. Do you know, in fairness to Dunlop, those boys spent hours finding bits of rubber and they discovered that it was a normal puncture. It wasn't a tyre... Uh, failure huh. it was a puncture because on my first outlap on the actual outlap around the back of the circuit at indianapolis there had been a crash and i had to slow and go around the flags and the situation so obviously i'd picked up something and in hindsight the marshals on the molsan prior to where the explosion happened they said sparks were coming out under the car so it was already losing its ride height I, th I think, in all honesty, if I'd been in that motor car since four o'clock in the afternoon or doing my normal stints, I would have sensed that the car was having a problem. Mm -hmm. But because it was my first, in effect, flying lap, I hadn't been in it long enough and settled in it mm -hmm. to realize, you know? Mm -hmm. But the Molsan was never a worry. I mean, you just kept your foot flat. And I think 242 miles an hour is what we were doing that year. And y you just literally, 
I remember one day, uh, because, you know, when you do an hour there, it's a long time in that Molsan, and you flex your fingers and you sort of relax and loosen a bit, and the kink is flat out, although that you do tighten the grip a little bit for that. Um, I actually radioed in to Eddie on the radio, and uh, my full name, don't laugh, is Winston Walter Frederick Lawrence Percy. And I said, Eddie, this is WWFLP calling, I'm bored. And he said, oh, Win, shut up, get off the radio. <laughs> but you a whole minute of just holding the pedal flat, you know. The, 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 the chicanes have spoiled it. I know safety comes into it, but... There is a bit of a legend around that story that hopefully you can clear up for us, and that apparently Tom was so concerned about you getting in the car because he'd had some kind of premonition about this happening. Is that true? Yeah, I'm afraid it is, mate. He, I went down with him in his plane. He said, look, you're not going to get in the car. Yeah, sorry, you're not going to race. He said, you can qualify. You're not going to race. I said, why? He said, it doesn't matter. And, of course, I kept on. I said, Tom, I want to drive it. I mean, 86 was great. I'd already been testing for 87. I wanted to drive it. I could I could um, match all their times, the Formula One boys. I wanted to do it before I got too old, you know. And he said, I had a dream. If you want to know, I had a dream. He said, one of my cars crashed and the driver was killed and it was you. That's why you're not getting in it. I said, oh, blooming heck. I said, no, it won't happen, Tom. He said, you're not driving. That's it. And I accepted it. Wow. But, you, you know, my last race at the mall, and I'm looking at a beautiful model of the car now in a beautiful big box in front of my, on my desk, was in 505, the D-Type. And that was the first Le Mans classic. And the races then were one-hour races, and we did four races. And we were all set with Nigel Webb to go with that beautiful car, and I love that car. Mm. Um, and somebody complained, somebody protested our car because it had a 3.8. And although 3.8s were totally eligible for the car, Mike won it in 55 in a 3.4. So Nigel, typical Nigel, fair as can be, wouldn't run the 3.8. So he tried to find a three, four everywhere. And one of fellow competitors said, I've got, we've got, my father and I, a 3.4. Ben, you... Oh, Ben Eastwick. Yeah, Ben Eastwick. And he said, we've got an old 3.4 works engine in the back of the garage somewhere. It's been dumped there for years. If you want it, you can have it. But please, we have it back in good condition. But I don't know what it's like now. <laughs> so, do you know, Gary Pearson went and got it. They cleaned it, stuffed it in the car, started it. It ran well. I think Gary used it on the road around Silverstone for a couple of days. We took it to Le Mans, and goodness knows how little power it had. It didn't matter. And I managed to win all four races with that car, all four one-hour races. And the fun of drifting that car around the Porsche curves. I said to Nigel, you're not going to like this. He said, what's that? I said, well, drifting that car at whatever speed it was, I said, through the Porsches and that, I said, brought me back memories of my over, overpowered 1650 Twin Cam Anglia <laughs> on dirt or autocross, drifting it sideways at 100 miles an hour, you know. <laughs> I said, that's where I got the skill of drifting, something like this. And I loved it. It was gorgeous. Well, it's very much driving with the throttle, isn't it? That was how those yeah. guys drove in the 1950s. And I guess that kind of relates to how you would have driven some of those early touring cars as well. Absolutely, yeah. If you can keep your rolling speed up, I mean, it's like um, Goodwood. You go to Goodwood with the, um, the, well, the cars especially, not the D, the D. You wouldn't play with a D through the first corner quite like that, uh, Magic. But the, um, the touring, say the Mark 1s and Mark 2s, You'd go up towards Madgwick, and you didn't really have to hit a brake. You could throw the car and then continue just playing with the throttle. And, and you, you'd steer it through with the throttle. It was an amazing feeling. Absolutely loved it, actually. I love the old the Goodwood events until this happened. I remember coming home after agreeing with Tom the 84 championship to drive the XJS as a Jaguar driver, and saying to Rosemary, my wife, I said, I've done it. I've got, I've got, I'm a Jaguar driver now, officially. And I, that is, that meant a lot to me. It still does now. All goes back to that 
XK140 that used to pull into that garage, didn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, of course, you went on to also drive the XJ220s and uh, the XJR15s as well. How did they compare to those Group C cars of TWR? The 220, I was up, that must have been 93, I was up at um, uh, Snatterton with it testing the Nissan touring car, front wheel drive touring car one day. And TWR was up there doing a test day with the 220 with thoughts of going to Le Mans. And I'd already gone to Nissan then. There wasn't much um, to do with Tom then because I'd been in Australia and set the Holden team up and thoroughly loved that. Absolutely loved the V8s over there. Mm -hmm. Came back and Tom didn't really have much for me then. So um, I'd gone back to Nissan um, touring car with um, Janspeed with Keith O'Dor. Anyway, we're at Snatterton, and I saw the 220 going around. I thought, it looks awful. It was it was porpoising up the straight. And I, I told the boys that I thought it did. Anyway, the next thing I hear, Tom phoned up and said, you've got half a day at Mallory Park, or we have. Would you like to go up and drive the 220? So I went up with the lads that day. We had half a day there, and we, we literally did improve it enormously. And they said, thank you. And I said, thanks. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't even think I got paid for it. Typical Tom. But anyway, um, then Tom's on the phone. He said, what are you doing Saturday? I said, um, nothing particular. Why? He said, would you come up to Silverstone to race the 220 in the BRDC race? He said, look, he said, there's a car for you. He said, if you win it, he said, I think I can get the money to run three of them at Le Mans. That was 93. And I said, yeah, okay, great. And he said, and if you do, then obviously you'll have a drive. So I went up and honestly on the Grand Prix circuit, compared with, um, well, the other cars in the race, although they were quick in their era, this thing suddenly was magic, you know. And on the Grand Prix circuit in 20 laps, lapped every car up to second and third, and they were just in front of me over the line. Hmm. I mean, that's the difference in that type of technology and that type of car. Mm -hmm. So that was it. We got the three cars. But the following week, we went back to Silverstone and we went just by playing with shocks and, and the setup. And we went from 150, I think it was 152, um, one minute 52. Um, anyway, we knocked something like eight seconds a lap off just by a day's testing before we went to Le Mans. And then, as you know, um, sadly, my car failed or our car failed, but um, David Coulthard, uh, Brabham, they won it. But it was when the ACO weren't really being very kind to Tom, the FIA really weren't being very good to him either. He burnt a couple of bridges, I suppose. But anyway, they found this catalytic converter contravene the regulations so they they lost it and still an iconic car of course uh, those cars run by don law these days and uh, very much seen on the historic circuits around the world to this day well i i literally met tom one day again at mallory park when i was testing a little sports car i was involved in then the harrier which was amazing david and goliath car you could take on the mclarens and all with this little two liter turbo cosworth fiberglass uh, harrier the lr9 and I was up there testing that one day, and I'd done my testing, and this guy called Don Law said, look, he said, I've rebuilt the Le Mans Silk Cut car for Jaguar. Would you like to take it round for me and, and make sure it's it's okay? And um, Howard was there from Jaguar, just see, overseeing it. I got in it, and I sort of got a lap or two just to get the feel of it, and came in. He said, any problems? I said, no. Can Please, I said, I've had a go. I've done you proud. Can I go out and have a little go in it? He said, yeah, but, you know, be careful. Those tires are God knows how many years old, decades old. And, and just be careful. I said, all right, thank you. Of course, that's like, you know, telling someone not to put the pedal to the floor, you know. <laughs> anyway, there was something like 30 former Fords going around. And this one car, this Le Mans winning Group C car, honestly, it was amazing. I was gobbling up these little Formula Fords for about 20 cars at a time, you know. And I stayed out there for about, oh, 20 laps, I suppose. Absolutely loved it. And then Don took me on to race for him. 
and that was the 220s that we came into the um, Jaguar series of racing. Um, yeah, absolutely loved it with him for quite a few years until Justin came of age and skills. And then he obviously the son took over for the father, you know. It must be really nostalgic when you see, and I know you're a massive fan of the events at Goodwood, when you see uh, those cars in the hands of Justin being thrown up that hill in the way that he does it. Do you, do you have real fond memories of those times or are they just look like old cars? Oh, no, I loved it. Uh, there wasn't one era of my sport that I think of as, oh, that was a bit boring or that was... Um, the only time I didn't feel comfortable in a car was the front-wheel drive Nissan, a touring car. I really was a real-wheel drive man, you know, and it, it was... It was... Um, yeah, it was alien to me, that was, but... Other than that, no. I mean, every single motor car I've raced, um, I've got fond memories of. Um, Jaguar being the most because of what it is, what it represented, the British car. And when I see that lovely glass case up at Jaguar with my suit and helmet and trophies and all, it, it really um, brings it home to me what it meant. When I was disabled, they put on a benevolent night for me, which I couldn't believe why anyone would want to do that for me, kind enough to do that. And I was talking to a couple of lads one day, and this was in 2003, and they said, you've got to remember that in the mid-80s, you know, we were fighting for our jobs. Jaguar weren't doing very well. We had mortgages, we had kids at school, and you guys came along, you won races, and car sold. Jaguar name suddenly comes back to the fore again. That meant a lot. We kept our jobs, we kept our homes, you know, and I never thought of it like that. To me, it was a wonderful sport that I enjoyed and got paid to do. And I just love the driving aspect of it, not the, not the, um, not the paperwork side of it, the, the being in a motor car. Do you know, we won Bathurst that year with the XJS and we stayed in Bathurst that night up in the Blue Mountains. We drove into Sydney the next day and we all went up to the Jaguar dealer at the King's Cross just to say thank you because they'd lent us road cars and that sort of thing. You would not believe the Australians that were queued up wanting to buy these cars that won Bathurst. <laughs> well, you know, they didn't even know it was XJS half of them. It was just a Jaguar that won the big race. That's the car to have. And I, I think, you, you'll probably find out better than me, but I think Jaguar sales from October when we won Bathurst for the rest of that year were 80% more than they've been for the rest of that year. Something like that anyway. Well, I know it's definitely of the opinion of uh, Alan Scott, of course, the legendary New Zealander who built so many of Tom Walkinshaw's engines in the day that it was you and Tom and the whole Group AXJS program that saved Jaguar at the time. It's win on Sunday, sell on Monday, and honestly. And TW wasn't an easy bloke at times. Um, he was the boss. He knew it. But if you, I don't know, if you just got on with your job, and I thankfully was quick enough to please him, yeah, it wasn't a problem. I'd rather have had the seat back a bit, but there we are. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Wynne Percy, thank you so much for joining us at these, well, difficult times that we find ourselves in uh, here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, uh, keeping all Jaguar fans in touch around the world. It's been a real pleasure to hear some of your amazing stories, and uh, we hope to see you at one of our events very, very soon. And uh, I'll let you kick back now and enjoy the All Spanish Veranda. <laughs> thank you, Wayne. All the very best. Join us next week on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast where we'll have another celebrity from the world of Jaguar with us and we'll be answering, of course, more of your technical questions. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jecpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder on there preferably or, of course, you can use the contact form as well. See you next week. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.